informative and entertaining. The Aaron Rand Show. Catch Aaron live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. So what's trending is a brand new feature we're going to be debuting today with James Foster. Get you caught up on everything that's going on today that's kind of catching on on social media. By the way, just one thing before we go to that with respect to the debates tonight. Someone texted me saying, okay, bets, what color will Trump and Hillary wear? So black suit for Trump, white shirt, red tie. That's pretty much par for the course. And then someone suggested, how about just to kind of, you know, throw Donald Trump off right from the beginning, right from the get-go. Hillary Clinton comes out in a dress. I've never seen her wear a dress. She's always in pantsuits. She comes out in a dress. Donald Trump is It's kind of like hitting the guy with the first punch in a fight. He wouldn't know how to react because you know he'd want to say something, right? You know he'd want to look at her and say, well, you're wearing it. I'm just thinking, will she come out in a dress tonight? Here's a look at what's trending with James Foster. Thanks so much, Aaron. And let's take a look at what's trending to start your week. The big presidential debate has everybody talking. It's going to be Clinton versus Trump. As many as 100 million people expected to tune in to hear Clinton's experience go up against Trump's words. But the social media battle right now squarely in the corner of the Clinton campaign, who picked the perfect time to release its latest attack ad. It shows several young girls cut together with some of Donald Trump's less than presidential statements. I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. She's a slob. She ate like a pig. A person who's flat-chested is very hard to be a 10. Does she have a good body? No. Does she have a fat Absolutely. Do you treat women with respect? Uh, I can't say that either. All right, good. Uh... The ad is called Mirrors and has more than 4 million views since being posted on Friday. The hashtags Debate Night and Debates also trending right now. The biggest video on YouTube could probably be the latest from Ants Canada. The channel's run by a guy who really, really likes his ants. It's all about setting up homes, how to feed them, how to care for them, and anything else that you could ever want to know about ants. His latest has him feeding his colony of fire ants. There's a lot going on in that video and way more than my words could ever do justice. It has more than 5 million views and it was only posted yesterday. Courtney Cox and Lisa Kudrow had a little bit of a friends reunion on the set of Celebrity Name Game. They really got the crowd going when they played a special friends edition of the bonus round. Uh, I was married to him. Chandler Bing! Uh, where we had coffee. Central Park. Um, he was across the way. We'd look at him through the binoculars. Oh, but ugly naked yes, guy. Yes, What Joey would say. How you doing? Yeah! There were some easy ones in there, yes, but ugly naked guy for the win. Brad Marchand is trending on Twitter right now thanks to the news that the Bruins offensively gifted past has signed a new eight-year, $49 million contract. That seemingly breaks the hearts of all Penguins fans who hope to one day see the winger in Pittsburgh to play with Sidney Crosby. Canadians are also celebrating the release of Homa Hudfar today from an infamous Iranian jail, helping the Concordia professor's name become one of the most talked about in the country. The other popular hashtags right now include National Pancake Day. How about Motivation Monday to help you get through the last couple hours of the workday? There's some motivational quotes like, you shouldn't want to be better than him or her, you should want to be better than yourself right now. And if all that fails, well, there's always just pictures of puppies. My favorite hashtag of the day is also a little bit of a challenge. It's been trending since this morning. The three albums that changed my life. People are naming the three albums that had the biggest impact on them. They're 
including that hashtag so you can go back and see what kind of music has changed people's lives. Myself, personally, I'd have to say it's No Substance from Bad Religion, American Saturday Night by Brad Paisley, and of course, The Elephant Show by Sharon, Lois, and Bram. That is what's happening online today. I'm James Foster, and I'll catch you again tomorrow for What's Trending. There you go. Yeah, that's brand new. We're going to have that for you every day just to let you know what's trending. On that last topic, on the three albums that have most changed your... First of all, I don't think any album has changed your my life, but I guess it means the ones that have had the biggest impact, although I never really thought of it that way. Sharon, Lois, and Bram, for you? Skinamarinky Dinky Dink. Really? Okay. Got yeah. it. Okay. I would throw a Crossroads, Bon Jovi's Greatest Hits album on there as well. And can you think of a third or is it, because I can only think of two. You got a third? Oh yeah. Teenage Dream, Katy Perry. It had more number one singles than any artist in music history. More than the Beatles, more than Michael Jackson. But that aside, for you, it had that kind of impact? I loved every song on that album. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I I mean, I don't know. I would say uh, Carole King Tapestry, because I must have listened to that 50 million times over the song on the album. Santana, Evil Ways, because it's the first album I ever remember buying. And I can't think of a third. Maybe the third would be one of the Beach Boys albums because I had all their albums back in the 1960s. Of course, only like two years old, but still, I had all those albums back then. So interesting, huh? Think of the three albums that you think you know may have had the biggest impact on your life. I wonder what they'd be. Certainly wouldn't be Bad Religion. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. Former Quebec Premier Jean Charest is on the line, and we're going to talk China because, well, if you were paying attention last week, you know that Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, was doing the best he could, entertaining the Chinese Premier here, signing all kinds of trade deals. We've heard since then that uh, there'll be flights going directly from Montreal to Shanghai. But Mr. Charest, I heard you or actually read a quote saying you were stunned, your words, by how quickly Canada and China are taking steps to improve relations. Why? Well, it's moved very, very rapidly at a pace that uh, we rarely see. Mr. Trudeau did an official visit to uh, China at the very beginning of September, end of August, around the G20 meeting, a very successful a visit where he did an announcement that was very significant. He announced that Canada would be joining what is called the Asia uh, uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank that the Chinese had put together, and uh, this was just before the G20, and then uh, and then the G20, and then a few weeks later, the Premier of uh, China is visiting Montreal and Canada and Ottawa, which you know is very rarely seen that you would have back-to-back visits in the in the space of less than a month. And that, that means something. It is significant. Which, of course, begs the question, why do you think this is happening now? Why are the Chinese all of a sudden so interested in doing business with Canada? Well, as usual, there, there's a lot of reasons. First of all, because uh, I, I think the Chinese see an opportunity for a reset in the relationship with Canada. The previous Harper government sort of put the relationship on pause. There were good moments and moments where they sort of were more hesitant and so it's a new government led by Mr. Trudeau, whose father uh, reopened diplomatic relationships, uh, relationship with China, which is significant for the Chinese. That, for them, the, that re- link between father and son is very significant. And, uh, and so I, I, I think they see that. But they also see, I believe, an opportunity to make a point relative to the United States. The issue, China is an issue during this election campaign in the United States. Whatever will happen, uh, you can assume the relationship will not be as good. It will be tougher for them. And I think they look to Canada and say, well, here's an opportunity to make a a counterpoint, that the neighbor of the United States, with whom everyone gets along, 
is someone that we get along with and with whom we have a, a much better relationship. You know, that's fascinating because, you know, as people will remember through the campaign, Donald Trump has repeatedly called out the Chinese, saying yeah. that uh, they're devaluing, they're devaluing their, their currency, which is making things difficult for America and ripping off Americans. So clearly, if he becomes president, that's not good news for the Chinese. But on the other hand, Hillary Clinton has always called out, you know, China for human rights problems. So there is no sort of other in this campaign for the Chinese, is there? There isn't, and one way or the other, uh, you, I think it's safe to assume that it will not be as good a relationship the day after the campaign than before. By the way, the same is true for Canada in regards to the United States. We can also expect on the American side a more isolationist country and a more protectionist uh, country, and they are our biggest trading partner. So we have a vested interest as a country to have a more structured relationship with all of Asia, and that includes, first and foremost, China, but not only China. It also includes Japan, India, and what we call the ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia, the 10 countries that make up ASEAN. And so, so Canada has a vested interest in having a more structured relationship with, the United, with China and, and the rest of Asia. Speaking with former Quebec Premier Jean Charest about Canada's uh, rush, or maybe China's rush, to try to do deals together. I, I wonder one other thing, though. You just brought this up. I'm now curious. If, a, if someone like Donald Trump became president, yeah. are, are you suggesting that some of these trade deals between Canada and the U.S. could be rescinded, torn up? How, how would that work? Well, it's a, it's a good question. He's already said that he'd, he'd get rid of NAFTA and uh, that he would slap a 35% tariff on everything that comes in from Mexico, and when, in fact, we have a very integrated economy, Aaron. I mean, there's not, you know, there's not a major manufacturing uh, object that is made in a single country anymore, whether it's a car or a boat or a snowmobile. It's all, uh, you know, a global uh, chain of, of assembly line, and so... If if uh, Mr. Trump is elected, it's it's rather unpredictable. But I, but whatever it is, it's not going to be better than it was the day before. You can pretty much assume that it's going to be a more negative trade environment than it was for us uh, the day before he was elected. It, 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 is it possible that he get elected? Well, you know, I'm, I'm among those who kept predicting that he would, you know, be uh, you know falling on his face after every statement he made in. And little do I know about politics. He, uh, he's come out of it stronger and stronger. You know, I wonder, though, can you, can you actually, I mean, it, Donald Trump makes it sound like, as you just said, you know, he's going to impose embargoes, et cetera, taxes. But you don't work in a vacuum as president. Can you just one day wake up and go, you know what, ah, screw it, I'm going to change the laws the way they are? Very good point. And, and the American political system is one of the most defused systems in the world in the sense that power is very much shared between Congress, the Senate, and the, and the House of Representatives, and the executive, more than Canada. In Canada, if you have a prime minister or a premier who has a majority, they're pretty much running the show, Aaron, and, and they can make decisions and, 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 and be called on them, but make decisions and make things happen. In the United States, it's a whole different ballgame. And you're quite right. The president cannot just do whatever he wants, but he can certainly set the tone and he can veto legislation and he can make life pretty miserable for those who are trying to deal with the United States. I want to get back to one thing about China that struck me as well. I don't know if you saw Stefan Dion's comments over the weekend in the Globe and Mail, but, you know, he seems to be having or taking a completely different tack from what the prime minister did the other day, saying we're welcoming China. And this is over the whole idea of extradition, right? The Chinese are saying, look, if we do a deal, part and parcel of that deal, we would want the fact that some Chinese who are in Canada illegally, as far as they're concerned, 
be extradited back to China. Now, we all know that the Chinese have a human rights issue, yeah. uh, and a lot of Canadians, politicians included, are aware of that. Justin Trudeau didn't seem to make a big deal of it, simply saying, look, we'll, we'll, ne we'll negotiate this. But then Stéphane Dion came out and said, we don't extradite to countries that have the death penalty, which, of course, caught everyone off guard because we do. So is there a huge disconnect here? What's going on? Well, it, it, there, there seems to be some nuance in the, in the positioning here. The first thing to keep in mind is that there cannot and there will not be a link between an extradition treaty, at least no direct link, and a trade agreement. And the government will never admit to that. Uh, they'll put it in the context of the bigger uh, relationship. Are there Chinese nationals in Canada, frankly, Aaron, who are criminals or have done things that, that for which they should be accountable for and, and sent back? The, problem, the answer is probably yes. There are people who have, are, are in the country today. Now, should we be doing an extradition treating with a country that has a death penalty? The answer is no, a definitive no. And, uh, and one of the challenges in doing an extradition treating with China is De determining what will happen to those people who are sent back right. once they're they're there. I mean, we won't be able to, to verify how they will be treated. So uh, we're, we are a long way uh, from an extradition treaty, and, and, and that would have to be negotiated based on the things that we value. And by the way, we're a long way from a trade agreement. I mean, it took us 15 years to negotiate an investment agreement with China, and what they've announced, uh, Premier uh, Li and Li Keqing and, and Mr. Trudeau, is the beginning of a study to determine whether we will do a trade agreement. So well, there are a lot of decision points between uh, now and the day where we both say yes to going ahead to negotiate with negotiations. Mr. Sherrod, thanks so much. Good talking to you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. All the best. Jean Sherrod, former Quebec Premier, on that whole China deal. Will it go forward, won't it? Yeah, but maybe it'll take another 15 years to happen, according to him. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. 436, James Many is on the line from the Montreal Gazette. Uh, so, Jim, let's start off by talking about what everybody else is talking about, the big, big debate tonight. Although I do like the fact that you're comparing uh, Jean-Francois Lisey of late, uh, sounding a little uh, Trumpian, if you will, at least on immigration. What's that about? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting little story, that, and it's kind of funny because, and I chose my words with care because, quite frankly, as infuriating as Donald Trump can be, uh, he does have a gift for, saying, for getting his message out. If there's just three words you want to remember, he'll make sure that you remember them, even though everyone else is yelling and screaming and ripping off their hair. And uh, Jean-Francois Lisée was having a press conference on the economy and immigration today. He first, uh, he, he first of all, in a rather pragmatic way, said, listen, immigration doesn't do that much for the Quebec economy. It's, it's, it has a negligible effect on the, on the Quebec economy. And if we should be having fewer uh, um, immigrants coming to Quebec, which, is, which isn't really new. But here's where things got interesting. He says, the best the best immigration would be from places like Paris and Brussels and Barcelona, full stop. Uh, afterwards, uh, when it was pointed out, are you just saying you like, you know, European, perhaps, i.e. white immigration? Because, no, 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 I, I, we'd be happy to take people from Shanghai and, you know, Senegal and whatever. But he wants qualified people. He wants people with diplomas. And he actually, as a PS, because, you know, there are people uh, in, in Paris and, and Brussels and, and uh, uh, Barcelona who could be members of Al-Qaeda. And we don't want those people in, here in of Quebec. Not, yeah. But of course not. But, I mean, what's interesting is I think he, uh, and, and this is where my comparison 
Donald Trump comes in. I think Trump has figured out there are certain uh, uh, pressure points you hit. You just hit them once, and and you walk away from it, and you explain yourself later, perhaps, or you or you not in Trump's case, but in Lise's case, perhaps you apologize for giving the wrong impression. But the impression that you've given is, if I am in charge, here's the message: if I'm in charge, we're going to be uh, shaking down on immigration. Uh, it's going to be a lot more in keeping with the rest of my identity policies, and and that's the message that comes out right now, and that's the message I think he wanted our PQ rank and file uh, voters who will be deciding whether or not he becomes their party leader on October 7th see here. And now that you know they've heard it, uh, will it work? Uh, a lot of people were shaking their fists at uh, Jean-Francois Lisey on social media today. Uh, some of them were actually posting dozens of photos of uh, you know Quebec vedettes and Quebec success stories who the, the, the posters figured came from less good places on earth, but who, who, who had brought a lot to Quebec. But I, I, I honestly don't believe that Jean-Francois Lisey is, you know, actually believes that that's the, the, those, those three cities are the only places you want to get your, your immigrants from. But I think he wants uh, his, his potential supporters to understand that that's where he could go if he's leader of the PQ. So in that regard, uh, I think maybe because we're getting closer to the you know, decision day for the PQ, he may be uh, juggling a little more, how can I put it, nitroglycerin-filled policies between now and voting day. We'll see how it goes. But let's face it, this guy knows how to put himself on the map, and he seems to be prepared to do it on a daily basis. You know, I was going to ask what you think. You know that story last week about the uh, Anglos for Quebec independence? Jennifer Drouin, the woman oh, of the yeah. yeah. I wonder how she feels now after having watched that debate on Sunday with the PQ leadership, where Martin Willette got yeah basically cheered for saying that you know when she becomes premier, the first thing they're going to do is get all these English signs that are up there taken down, and then when uh, I guess it was Alexandre Cloutier said no no we need to respect you know the minorities, he yeah, got booed. He got booed. Yeah. So, well, I ha- I, from from the get go, I'll tell you, I mean, it is significant. Uh, lest, lest we forget, these these were rank and file uh, PQ members at this debate, and it really sounded. I, I watched a lot of it because the rest of you, so, so the rest of you don't have to. But um, uh, I watched a lot of it, and I got the impression there were a lot of Martin Ouellette supporters in the audience. Uh, as for this uh, Anglo's for Quebec independence, I have to tell you, when we talk about, and I'm speaking as a journalist and as a Simon editor, I can't figure out why we're giving coverage to a group that boasts all of 40 members. Uh, give me enough time and. And a big enough bar tab, and I swear I can get 50 or even 60 <laughs> Quebecers yeah. to to say it's time for Quebec to join the United Federation of Planets. So let's just let's everybody put everything in context here. I don't think you're going to see any ground swells any anytime soon. Fair enough. All right, let's talk about uh, the mayor. We we know the pit bull ban is uh, well. We originally thought it might come to a vote tonight. It may not now until yeah. tomorrow morning. But you find it odd that the mayor felt the need to call a little uh, press scrum today to let everybody know he's not going to be backing down. Well. I think you know there's there's a he knows that this is a very very divisive visceral issue. He knows, for example, that overall, yeah, pit bulls are as as a single type may be the kings of bites here in Montreal, but they represent forty percent of of all the bites that have that were recorded. Um, and I think he knows down the road he's going to get a lot of grief for this. Project Montreal is going to be the least of his worries. There'll be people outside City Hall tonight protesting. That's my understanding. And this is an 
issue where you know we had that rather embarrassing uh, hot mic uh, situation last week, where Andy Samson was heard to say, "No, this is not based on science. This is based simply on common sense." Even though, ostensibly, the the administration was saying, "Well, no, we have all these reports to back up our decision and and, and whatever." Let's face it, there are they're, they're, they're probably guessing there are more people out there who are frightened and detest pit bulls than are not. Uh, and it doesn't matter that the you know the vets. There are a lot of vets out there who who are opposed to this. Clearly, the SPCA is opposed to this. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, it, the debate will be interesting tonight. Of course, you know, he, he'll, I'm sure he's already whipped a, a majority on this. But in, in the end, it may all be moot because if Quebec ever finally decides to move on this, we're going to have, you know, we've got to have one standard anyway. And Quebec's version of their pit bull law, if you will, is, uh, how can I put it, similar in some parts to what's being suggested by the Kadera administration, but it's a lot less pit bull based. So we'll see which way that's going to go. But let's face it, uh, there'll be lots of interesting, uh, how can I put it, debates this evening over just where, you know, who's going to be responsible for the potential deaths of these pit bulls who are going to be euthanized simply because they're pit bulls. By the way, I I want to understand this. When the provincial government does come out with a law as far as pit bull goes, does that supersede the municipal law? Absolutely. You have provincial controls that supersede. Aaron, you know, the number of times you and I have talked about various pit bull bylaws, we've got a patchwork here. Laval is nothing like Montreal. Longay is kind of like Montreal, but not exactly the same. And you can go to Brossard, you can go to all these other towns. I mean, it is preposterous for the provincial government to be sitting on its hands on something like this. It is an issue that people are talking about. I know that, you know, even today, Jean-Francois Lisey said we should be opening up more offices around the world to promote Quebec business, but the reality is no one's talking about that right now. People are wondering about their dogs and wondering if their dog is going to be on the list of, you know, the next, the next species to be hit. So, yeah, Quebec's going to have to move on this. All right, let's finally just mention real quick, because that's the story everyone's talking about tonight. Uh, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, uh, as you suggest, while most people will be holding their nose probably this year while they vote, uh, this is going to be an interesting evening of television, if nothing else. An interesting evening of, of television, maybe a record-breaking evening of television, and it's going to be, I think, it's going to be make or break for Hillary Clinton. I know they were talking earlier today about how Trump and, and Clinton seem to be in a dead heat in the polls. There's a very new poll that came out, when I say that, maybe an hour, an hour and a half old. They've got her five points ahead. But here's what's crazy, Aaron. Uh, you and I and a lot of our listeners uh, come from an age where presidential debates matter. I don't think this matters. This is, this is just going to be maybe a little spike on all the white noise from both camps uh, in, in this campaign. Now with social media, it, it won't, there won't be a knockout punch because they're flailing at each other all the time. What's important, though, the person who has the most to lose tonight uh, is, is Hillary Clinton. Unless she puts him away repeatedly and often and memorably, she's got a real problem on her hands. She's been running a terrible campaign. Uh, whatever, you know, she was in double-digit leads in, in several polls across the country. That has evaporated to single and, and sometimes dead heats. Uh, there's talk about her losing support in Ohio and Pennsylvania. This wasn't supposed to happen, and it is happening. And quite frankly, uh, Ms. Clinton is now rivaling Pauline Marois, as far as I'm concerned, with one of the, running one of the worst campaigns in North American history. It's going to be interesting to see what she does to Donald Trump tonight, because she better do it tonight. This guy has got to be put away and put away in a very, very convincing fashion. Am I saying she has to get down to his level? No. She has to go lower than him and flip him up from 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 the the bottom it's as simple as that so body blows and jabs are not going to do it uh body blows and you know it's going to have to be almost like a cosmic political wedgie that's going (laughs) to leave him smarting for days okay and embarrassed at the same time absolutely that's the key word she has to embarrass him 
We shall see. It's going to be an interesting evening. We'll see if they you get bet. that 100 million people they're saying they might. Jim, thank you. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. So tonight's the big debate. I'm going to ask you just uh, when we get done here talking to Pam Coulter, the uh, CBS White House correspondent, what you think, who you think is going to win, and basically ask the question as well, Will you be watching? They expect the TV audience for this to be somewhere up around 100 million viewers. But you want to take note of this. This is the uh, campaign ad released by the Clinton camp uh, just a couple of days ago, just in time for this. And I'm going to set the stage for you. It's called Mirrors. Now, imagine uh, a bunch of little girls, right, all sitting and watching, and they see Donald Trump on TV. All these little girls, four, five, six, seven years old, and this is what they hear. I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. She's a slob. She ate like a pig. A person who's flat-chested is very hard to be a 10. Does she have a good body? No. Does she have a fat Absolutely. Do you treat women with respect? Uh, I can't say that either. All right, good. Uh... All right, it's called Mirrors. That's the campaign ad, and that's uh, been viewed now over 4 million times. I imagine that'll probably come up tonight as well. Right now, let's find out what to look for uh, in tonight's debate. Pam Coulter is the uh, White House correspondent at CBS. And Pam, uh, let's start off with, with Hillary Clinton first. What does she have to do tonight to convince Americans that she is the right choice? Hi, Aaron. Well, she doesn't have to be just the smartest person in the room. And if she was only the smartest person in the room, it probably wouldn't go well for her. She needs to humanize herself. She needs to... Be, have people be able to relate to her. She needs to speak in very personal terms, uh, not just talk policy, but how policy will affect people. And she needs to appear um, calm and steady and in charge and uh, in command of the issues and, uh, you know, try to contrast that with uh, Donald Trump and, and whether he has an equal command of the issues as she does. You know, I heard a couple of people saying, we talked about this earlier on, saying it would be really good and it's really important for Hillary Clinton tonight to try to appear likable. Do you buy that? And if that's the case, how does she do that? Well, uh, that's a tough thing. Um, You know, it it can be done. Uh, You know, you recall the time uh, when she was asked by one interviewer, you know, why is it that, you know, people seem to like Barack Obama and not you so much? And she kind of smiled and said, well, that hurts my feelings. And I think that line, just a lot of people could relate to that and, and understand that. And she seemed likable then. And, you know, you hear that she's likable in small rooms with small groups of people. She needs to figure out a way to translate that to this enormous stage that she's going to have tonight. All right. So now that's what she has to do. Uh, someone called up and said, you know, perhaps the best thing for her to do tonight, really throw Donald Trump off his game, is to come out wearing a dress. <laughs> she's, she's the, you know, the, the power pantsuit person, mm, I guess. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if she wore a dress. Um, have not seen her wear one, as far as I've noticed, on the campaign trail. Um, but, you know, they have been prepping for all kinds of versions of Donald Trump, you know, sort of the, the more caustic, the more insulting Donald Trump, the more aggressive Donald Trump, and also a kinder, gentler Donald Trump who may try to appear, you know, more presidential and more reserved and, uh, you know, uh, more moderate. 
Okay, well, that's interesting because a lot of people will then say, wait a sec, why should he change anything he's done or any way he's acted? Because up until now, it doesn't matter what he said or done. The polls haven't gone down, so he seems to be doing well just doing what he's doing. Do you expect you'll see a change tonight in Donald Trump? Well, you know, I don't think if I could predict that, I you know, would probably buy a lottery ticket. It's, <laughs> it's really hard to know. But you, you're very correct. The polls really have been going in his direction, uh, and his campaign thinks that they've got the momentum. They're very happy about the position that he's in right now. So you're right. I mean, he may feel that he has done it right, and he's look how far he's gotten. Um, but this is different from the primaries. It's not going to be in the rallies that he's held, where he gets a lot of, you know, uh, very uh, boisterous feedback and support. Um, it's going to be a very quiet audience. They're really told they can only applaud at the beginning when the candidates are introduced and at the very end. Uh, so it's going to be very much a question and answer kind of period, not the kind of thing that he's been used to. And it and it may not play so well to, you know, be calling her crooked Hillary uh, in that venue in front of, you know, possibly 100 million people. But we'll just have to see. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember during the Republican debates, you know, each of the candidates then had their own people in the audience. And it didn't matter what the rules were. They applauded and yelled and catcalled whenever they could. I'm not so sure that's going to not be the situation tonight, even though they've been told they can't do it. But but I'm wondering, with respect to how this evening plays out, what's the agenda? How does this roll out tonight? Well, it's a 90-minute debate. It's going to be broken into 15-minute segments. Uh, from a coin toss, Hillary Clinton is going to get the first question from the moderator, who's Lester Holt of NBC News. Each candidate uh, will have two minutes to answer a question, and then they can respond to each other during that period. And as well, the moderator can try to probe a little further and go a little deeper on the, on the issue. And uh, the broad sort of categories for uh, what they're going to be uh, talking about in terms of questions, it's going to be on, you know, security and prosperity and the future direction of the country. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it should be, you know, pretty interesting. You know, it, Donald Trump is used to long rallies, but he's never been on the stage with just one other opponent where, you know, he's going to have to really – uh, bring his A game and and uh, you know be up there. He can't just let the you know other candidates uh, carry the ball. You know we've heard a lot about the fact that Hillary Clinton has been through this on so many different occasions, at least 30 different debates, and Donald Trump has never been in this situation. We know that Hillary Clinton as well has been prepping now for quite some time. I heard a story this morning that Donald Trump not really prepping very much at all. In fact, he was out this morning just taking it easy. Well, you know, I think they like that narrative. They like the fact that she's that they think she's over preparing and that he's just going to come in and be his natural self and not have to work hard. Um, I would be surprised if they weren't doing a little bit more prepping behind the scenes. Maybe not formal standing behind the podium kind of thing, but you know, more shooting questions at him and watching his response. House Speaker Paul Ryan even said. You know, his recommendation was for Trump to really study up because this is one of the big moments of the campaign. And uh, as Frank Ferenkopf said, who's one of the co-chairs of the Presidential Debate Commission, you don't get a second chance to make that first impression. Yeah, Pam, thank you so much. CBS White House correspondent Pam Coulter on some of the things to look for in tonight's presidential debate. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast.
Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. Let's start by talking about this vote that's going to be going on. If not tonight, Pat, then maybe Monday. I guess if the protesters hold things up long enough, we won't know if the city goes through with this pit bull ban or not. But I thought it was interesting today. The mayor called a scrum early this afternoon to basically say, look, uh, doesn't matter what goes on tonight. And we already know there are protesters down there at City Hall. Uh, we're going ahead with this thing, even though the opposition, of course, does not like the idea. Many people don't. What do you think about this? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, before last spring, when uh, my, my, one of my colleagues at La Presse did a, a very hard-hitting piece about how uh, people, people's lives, a lot of people's lives, kids including, were, were, were basically wrecked. Uh, shattered because they were bitten by pit bulls, and it started a debate about, uh, you know, how do you how do you regulate these dogs? And uh, before that, I, I think you know we can argue about is it the right way what the city of Montreal is doing? Is it the right way what the province is thinking of doing? The good thing is we're talking about how do you regulate dangerous dogs in this society? That's quite a difference between now and before last spring when basically. It was a laissez-faire, let everyone, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, deal with these dogs right. uh, à la pièce, as we say. So I think that it, it, what's happening here, to me, I don't have a pit bull. I've had dogs before. I don't think it's that inhumane. You know, if you have a dog, if you have a pit bull and you care for it and, and it's a good dog, you're not going to lose it. Uh, so in this way, I think that it's 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 a very good bylaw. I wonder if the mayor kind of opened the door. I heard a clip before uh, where he was saying, explaining this, as you just said now, and he said, you know, uh, it's possible you'll adopt the dog off our territory. So, sort of saying, well, look, if you were to go to Ontario and adopt yeah. a dog there and bring it back, as long as you respected the laws governing pit bulls, that'd be okay. Well, look, we'll wait to see. I, I, I think that's part of the problem. Uh, you know, Ontario has banned pit bulls for 10 years, so you're not supposed to have new pit bulls in, in, in our neighboring province. So those pit bulls who do uh, get to a shelter, uh, baby pit bulls, if you like, they're shipped in other jurisdictions, including Quebec. Uh, and, and, and I have personally a problem with the fact that anybody can buy any kind of dog. I think that I'd like to see uh, one day, and I think that uh, the province is thinking of a, of a, a law itself. You know, I think owning a dog is a lot of responsibilities. I think owning a dog, just like in Switzerland, you should be uh, obligated to take a course and, and, and prove that you can control your dog. Because right now you can buy dogs anywhere. You can buy dogs at the flea market on Kijiji. I think that's insane. Uh, and I think that, you know, you want to know where the dog uh, comes from. So I don't think anybody should be able, just about anybody and everybody should be able to breed certain uh, uh, all kinds of dogs including pit bulls you know the bottom line is we want to protect people uh and and we've seen situations in the past where you know the police were not even able to enforce existing laws and bylaws and i hope that our mayor by adopting by pushing for the adoption of this new bylaw will also send a memo to the police because right now aaron i don't know if you have friends who've ever called police to report uh, dangerous dogs you know just out on the loose uh, in parks. I know I have. I know my neighbors have. And basically what you're told by the police is if the dog has not bitten anyone, we can't do anything. I think that's really stupid. I think that if I, if someone is walking down my street with a, a machete or a knife and I call police, I'm pretty sure they're going to act upon this situation by, 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 by determining that, you know, it could potentially be dangerous. 
when a pit bull is in my backyard or in the park where my, my son plays and he's not on the leash, I think that's a potentially very dangerous situation and the police should act as such. What do you say, though, to people, and there are quite a few people, including the SPCA, who suggested breed-specific bands just don't work? Um, I think that uh, in certain jurisdictions, you've seen uh, small small um, improvements. Uh, I know in Spain it's been the case. Uh, in Manitoba, other models have worked as well. Calgary has a, a, a model where they do not. Uh, ban uh, specific breeds. What I want to see, really, is uh, dogs that could be... You know, if, 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 you're, if you're bitten by a poodle, usually it won't tear off your face, your nose, or your finger. If you're bitten by a Rottweiler, if you're bitten by a uh, German Shepherd or a Pitbull, it could ruin your life. These dogs, I think, should be considered as a huge privilege for you to own, and you should be... Uh, you should abide by rules that are very different from people who have poodles or other kind of dogs. That's what the present bylaw and the coming uh, provincial law is, is aiming at. And I think that's a good thing. All right, let's talk about this other thing, which has not been talked about for a long time. If people yeah. remember back to the Lac Concorde overpass tragedy, it's now been 10 years since that. And I know you had a story today about an eight-year-old, and, you know, we heard about it for all of a day or a week or two, and then it was forgotten, but he was orphaned yeah. uh, when both his parents were crushed to death in that. What's the story here? Yeah, the story here is, is you know, it's been 10 years, and one of my colleagues at La Presse uh, succeeded in, in, in having an interview with this, uh, uh, this man now. He's 18 years old. He was eight years old when the, 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 the overpass in Laval fell and killed, I think it was five people, including his two parents. And of course, the, 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 it changed this guy's life. And uh, two things. He said that he never received any excuses from the Quebec government in any shape or form. I think that's really, uh, that is really an embarrassment. Wait, when, when you say excuses, you mean apologies? An apo just an acknowledgement. An acknowledgement, okay. There you go. Just say, look, this happened. It should never have happened. We're sorry. Right. You know, the Quebec people says we're sorry. It never happened. Uh, he never got these these words of comfort, of, of excuses. And apparently, uh, from, from what my colleague uh, gathered, uh, the, the government never did it because it thought that it would open the door to a lawsuit or something mm -hmm. like that, which I think is another kind of embarrassment. But what I wanted to tell you is that, you know, there was a commission of inquiry to establish, you know, who did what wrong and everything. And to me, it reminded me uh, of, of uh, the Charbonneau Commission a couple of years afterwards. No one was really blamed. No one was really fingered. It's almost as if in this province, it's very Quebecois in this sense, you know, you can do very, very bad deeds and you, no one is responsible. The system is responsible, but uh, hardly ever, anyone is, is, is ever blamed by name. And I think, you know, that, that, that's just an open door for people to uh, do uh, bad things. Were, were those people, that, I mean, so here's someone who lost both his parents. They were, or he was at least, I'm guessing, uh, awarded financial compensation? Uh, he, he was awarded financial compensation uh, under the, uh, the existing uh, 
the existing regulation from the uh, Société de l'assurance automobile. Okay. So basically in this province, and I think, you know, collectively in the the grand scheme of things, it's a good thing. The no-fault system, I think there should be maybe sometimes accommodation exceptions because in this case, he was awarded uh, damages just as if his two parents had died in a head-on collision on the conventional route. Okay, and and the premier actually did. What did the premier actually said? They he apologized for the government for having yes, not done yes. this. Yes, I think there was a scrum, and the reporters uh, uh, mentioned that uh, that interview in La Presse, and Mr. Couillard did present his excuses, uh, his apologies, mm-hmm. his formal apologies, and uh, the, the, there was a follow up. I think today in La Presse, and and the man, the young man, said, you know, I heard it, and, and I'm fine with it. I'm happy that okay. he, he did apologize. I don't want to take it further. I wouldn't even want to meet with it. All right. Just final note. You're the, you're working the uh, debate desk tonight, are you? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was given the task of uh, covering the debate for La Presse, so I have to turn uh, turn in the column before uh, eleven o'clock tonight. And you know, I, I'm really looking forward to it because it's going to be a, a very interesting matchup, uh, a very seasoned poll in in Mrs. Clinton and someone uh, for whom a, it's going to be a first debating in a presidential setting like this. And, uh, you know, the, the, the question I'm wondering is, you know, if, if you're an American and if you, if you haven't made up uh, your mind, uh, if you've made up your mind voting for Trump, Aaron, what could possibly convince right. you not to vote for the xenophobic dog whistler? That's what I'm wondering. Oh, the xenophobic dog whistler, that would be Donald Trump. <laughs> that would be him. Got it. <laughs> hey, Pat, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Take care. Have fun. Pat Lagasse from La Presse. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. Time for Tommy's Take here on the show today. Tommy Schnurmacher joining me. So, Tommy, uh, all eyes focused on the big debate. Only a couple of hours, two, three hours away. So let's start by talking about that. Uh, A lot of people have been saying, I mean, a lot of people say a lot of different things in this debate, but a lot of people have been saying that uh, if Donald Trump does well tonight, that's it. It's over. What do you think? Well, I think it's going to be a huge help for him because, I mean, a lot of the battleground states, it's uh, neck and neck. And what he has going for him is he's been going up in the polls recently. That's number one. And the expectations for him are, are zero. I mean, no one's expecting anything. I mean, if he doesn't do something thoroughly embarrassing and drop his pants in the middle of the debate, that'll be seen as, oh, he didn't do that, so that's presidential. By not bringing Jennifer Flowers, by having brought her up and then not bringing her, that's seen as presidential because there's such low expectations of him. But everybody's tuning in, Aaron, to see him. No one wants to, I wonder what Hillary thinks about education in America. So I'm going to tune in for that. That's not the reason. They want to see what's he going to do uh, to surprise people. He's the one who has years of experience as a super successful star of reality television. Her experience, as Newt Gingrich said, she has experience reading position papers. So uh, this is his game. He's very comfortable. But he's got to be careful because attacking those other guys is one thing. Attacking a woman is a little different. You know, they're saying what Hillary Clinton has uh, debates, uh, 30 debates in her history. She knows how to handle this. And Donald Trump, of course, has none. Uh, outside of whatever happened with other Republican candidates. But I'm just wondering, is it almost an advantage, do you think, for him not having that experience? Because he can just come out swinging like he always does. Well, he, he does see it that way. And something that can, I think it's important to prepare somewhat, but it's just like a test at school. You can also, not preparing at all is not a good idea, but you can also over-prepare. 
And what happened with Ronald Reagan is they try to do this, try to say this, they told him, try to say this. And, he, and then one of his advisors said, you know what, leave him alone. Let Ronald Reagan be Ronald Reagan. And it worked, right? And, and it worked with him because I guess Trump doesn't want to be too scripted. He doesn't like sticking to a script. And I'm convinced that he has some surprise in his pocket because that's how reality television works, right? Each episode has mm -hmm. some big shocker or a big reveal or a surprise. And so what the surprise is, I don't know, but I'm sure he'll have one. You mean like maybe pulling out a picture of you know Kim Jong-un from his pocket and saying he's also friends with him? Something like yes, that? Or? Yes. He might say, did he give you any money, Hillary? Uh, you know, oh, that'd could, be good. Could, could be that. He could pull any kind of uh, stunt. She's going to be working on, I'm sure she's hired psychologists to find out what is his Achilles heel. You know, that he's not a good businessman. He's not really a billionaire. Uh, that he rips people off. The whole thing is to get him to lose his cool. And I've heard one commentator say that the first person who loses their cool loses the uh, debate. More likely he would than she would. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because he, he also thinks he can't take advice from anybody because right. he knows everything. All right. Let's move on to talk about politics here. Uh, and this is interesting about Stéphane Dion, who it seems to me, uh, ever since he came this close, possibly to being prime minister of this country, has done some very strange things in his portfolio in foreign affairs. Most recently, this one now, where he is denying that Ottawa is negotiate, uh, negotiating an, an extradition treaty with China. This after Justin Trudeau basically said they absolutely were two days ago. What's this about? Uh, they are negotiating. He doesn't like the uh, death penalty, and he's got a very short temper. And he says, like, absurd things. First of all, he's not the prime minister. He's a minister. So he should take his orders from, from the boss. That's number one. And he's quoted Aaron in the Globe and Mail today saying, we never extradite people to countries who have the death penalty. Uh, wrong. Right. We do regularly, right? We extradite them to the United States. They definitely have the death penalty. And this notion of that, while we certainly would want assurances, this business, can you imagine if you're a Chinese negotiator, Aaron? Oh, they want assurances? What would they like me to sign? Yeah, what is an assurance sure. mean? I have to sign on this piece of not paper? Not a problem. Yeah, exactly. Not a problem. Let me sign. It's just an absurdity. I mean, Amnesty International knows they have a horrible record. They execute people all the time. And what we have to do, and I think Trudeau has figured that out, is what you have to do is, of course, you're going to make a deal with uh, China. Uh, you're going to make a deal with Saudi Arabia and sell them billions of dollars of armored vehicles, and you'll just call them jeeps. Uh, you'll you'll sell China whatever it wants. You'll extradite whoever China wants. But you'll say, oh, but we're very concerned about uh, human rights because you have to pay lip service to that. But it comes down to one thing, Aaron. Business is business, and, and the Canadian government has no intention of giving up the billions of dollars of business that they do with Saudi Arabia and the, the business they do with China. Right. So is the bigger problem here than what's wrong with Stéphane Dion? He, he should make up his mind. And also, what, what is he getting so impatient about? I mean, he, he, uh, he doesn't realize that he's not the boss. He's not the one who decides this and that people aren't as stupid as he thinks. He said that he didn't sign the Saudi deal either when he did. Right. So he's just more and more uh, impatient. Becoming an embarrassment for the government, in a sense? Well, they're going to have to tell him, don't tell people we're not negotiating when we're negotiating. Let's move on to the last topic for today. Uh, public transit, free for seniors. It's an idea that's been floated before. I know they have this in other parts of the world, at least in some. Uh, what do you think of this idea? Free transport for seniors? Good idea? Bad idea? Well, you know, is, it, is it feasible? Well, I think it would be feasible. But if you think about it, uh, about 30 or 40 years ago, senior citizens used to have a huge level of poverty. They were demographic with that really ha had a tough. 
But now the seniors are the baby boomers. They bought houses for next to nothing that are worth five to 10 times what they paid for it. The level of poverty among seniors is now down to only 7%. And many of them have various pensions coming in. They have the value of their house. They can borrow money against their house. They can get reverse mortgages. Mortgages. They're doing a lot better than, for instance, millennials who are in the gig economy. They can't get a full-time job or a pension or anything of the kind. They have no hope of ever buying a house. And so they're the ones who have to pay full freight on practically everything. And I think for seniors who already get a discount uh, on transportation, uh, I don't think it needs to be free. And if it is going to be free, it makes no sense for it to be free for somebody who's living in a house worth half a million dollars. It should be means-tested. And I don't mean, you know, ask people, do you have money or not? Like if you have the guaranteed income supplement, then you'd be able to get it for free. Perhaps that's one way to do it. If you listen really, really carefully now, just for a second, can you hear that sound? That's the sound of seniors screaming at the radio right now. Yes, that's right. I hear that. it. You hear I that? Hear, there seems to be quite a, a, yeah. a mob coming. I, I, I can see it outside the window with the pitchforks. Uh, yes. I yeah. don't know. If, yeah. if that's only such a small part of the population that really is going to be affected by this, why not let them have it? Well, somebody has to pay for it, Aaron. Who would you think should pay for it? We'll all pay for it. Oh, there's You're going to be a senior well, one day. You're yes, going to appreciate that we have that, What do you mean one day? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a real senior, I mean. Oh, real senior. Yeah. Very senior, yes. Yeah, 90s, the new 30. So that's still a no, huh? You don't think it should be free? No, I don't all think right. it should be free. Tommy Schnurmacher on Tommy's Take. Thank you, Tommy. You're listening to the Aaron Rand Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays 3 to 7 on CJAD 800. The good news this morning, as I said, broke early when we found out that the Homo Hutfar was released from a, an Iranian jail. This is a story that's been going on now for quite some time. Uh, protests began here because she's a retired Concordia University uh, professor. But the protests got bigger and bigger and bigger and went from just Montreal basically around the world with people signing petitions suggesting she be released, that she was being unfairly held. Uh, what One of the charges, and this is amazing, but it'll give you an idea of what it's like in other places around the world, and certainly in Iran, for dabbling in feminism, whatever that means. She was put in a very, very difficult prison, one that's become unfortunately infamous. Uh, but the good news today, after petitions from so many people around the world, she was released. And I know the community here is overjoyed at having found out that news. My guest Mark LaFrance is an assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at Concordia. You just, First of all, welcome. You described her as uh, basically your second mom. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, Homa and I go back about eight years now, and uh, I lived around the corner from her for many, many years, and I was over there for dinner uh, more times than, than I can count. She, she fed me and took care of me for a long time. When this happened, when we found out she had gone back to her end and then eventually had been in prison, what was your reaction back then? Uh, well, complete devastation um, and uh, shock, obviously, uh, astonishment, because her work has always been so careful, so balanced, so even-handed. Um, we Nobody really understands to this day why she's she's been picked on to this extent. Um, and obviously that's a huge understatement, but uh, nobody really understands why they would go after her. So when you say she was even-handed and balanced, we can only imagine that in going back to Iran, where she'd been before apparently, mm -hmm. and there had never been an issue why would this have happened now I'm, and i'm not asking you as if you know but why would you suppose this would have happened now what might have happened that created this situation where they felt the need to arrest her well, I, obviously I can't speak to the details of the case directly because I just don't know because um, I, I haven't been privy to those kinds of uh, sort of high-level uh, negotiations. However, um, there's no question that this arrest came at a time um, when 
her situation appeared to be overlapping with a variety of other major geopolitical events, okay. uh, and certainly um, big political up, uh, big political changes and transformations within Iran itself, right? And so Iran went from having a hardline government to having a more moderate government, but this inflamed, obviously, the more extreme um, parts of uh, the Iranian establishment, notably the Revolutionary Guard. So in some respects... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say too much more than that because well, sure, I'm not a Middle tough, Eastern it's specialist. It's tough to understand. But it is. It's extremely yeah. complex. But there's no question. Her case was bound up in a lot of other broader political issues. And, of course, what happened after a while was we became uh, very concerned, not only because she's in prison. That's reason enough for concern. The fact yeah. that she was in very poor health to begin with, was yeah. on medication, was becoming more and more weak. Uh, yet she's out today. How much do we know about her condition now? What have you heard? Well, we don't know much about the actual state of her health. I'm I'm going by the photos that are now being tweeted and shared online. Um, she looks remarkably good for someone who was in solitary confinement for over 100 days, who has a debilitating and degenerative neurological condition and who could barely walk or talk a few weeks ago. Um, so I think she looks astonishingly good. Um, she's lost a lot of weight. Um, there's no question about that. Um, and there, there are other things about her that definitely indicate that she's been through a lot of trauma, um, from, from what I've been able to see on the photos. However, you know, frankly, the fact that she's moving around, she's walking without a cane or any assistance, um, and she's actually smiling and looking charismatic in front of the, uh, the cameras, it is an enormous testament to her strength. Speaking about Homo Hudfar, the retired Concordia University professor who was released earlier today from an Iranian jail, uh, do you have any idea what the schedule of events is? I know she's in Oman. Uh, she's going to have to undergo, obviously, a physical. Uh, then what happens next? Any idea what the schedule is beyond that? No, I'm afraid right now we're still waiting for more news. Um, and that, that will come, uh, but it's, it hasn't come yet. We just received, uh, we just received a message from her niece and the, the sort of the leader of the campaign mm -hmm. who said that there will be more, more news following soon. You know, I, when people, it's funny because someone gets thrust into the spotlight this way who, I mean, obviously is an academic, you know who she was. Most other people had no idea who she was. Yeah. Yet when this happened, not just academics here, but as I said off the top of the interview, people in this field everywhere, everywhere. rallied behind her and oh, yeah. obviously brought enough pressure to bear on the Iranian government that they at some point sat back and went, okay, we have to let this happen. And if it took one side, you know, the hardline side being talked to by the other, by the softline side, it got done. How surprising is, is that in and of itself, that it did get done? Because uh, it seems to me most people have given up hope. Well, I think that for us, it was definitely hard at times to remain optimistic that we were going to be successful. There were, especially when the news of the hospitalization came out, we, I think uh, many of us became very discouraged, but we continued to fight with everything in us. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I was absolutely shocked when I got the news this morning. And, and so were all of my colleagues who have been working on this day and night for months and months. Uh, we did not, we didn't see it coming. Yeah. And we're just so <laughs> thankful. What can you tell us Now you said she was like a second mom to you? You had dinner at her house many, many times. What can you tell us about her professionally from what you do in terms of working together? Mm. Oh, yeah. She's amazing to work with. Um, in fact, um, her her most recent, one of her most recent books on sexuality in Muslim contexts is one is one that I endorsed um, on the back cover. So we've, you know, we've, we've evaluated articles for each other's publications, that sort of stuff. Um, working with her is a real pleasure. Uh, we've co-supervised students together. She is a woman uh, and a scholar of enormous integrity. They you might even say they don't make them like this anymore. Um, scholars of her rigor and her 
the, the quality of her analysis and like I say that the balanced and even-handed nature mm-hmm. of it it's just so rigorous it's so truly scholarly um, and uh, she's just one of those people who's a complete workaholic I mean uh, she I would get emails from her at three in the morning she made me feel like a slacker and I'm a workaholic <laughs> so I mean the woman her, there was no end to her devotion to her students and I'm not just saying that this is not mythologization this is actually true anybody you speak to will say she her the level of her devotion the level of her commitment the level of her engagement you don't find that very often you know i just as a final question i know we're speculating here we're trying to come up with theories on our own as to how and why and whatever else but for someone championing it'd be fair to say she championed the cause of feminism she she championed the rights of women yeah and the and that that all human that human rights are that women's rights are human rights and that 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 we're all equal do you think she had any idea that when she went back to Iran this time that there might be trouble because of these beliefs? No, no. She, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite convinced that that's not the case because when, you know, I, I, I actually ate with her. I ate dinner with her just what two or three days before she mm-hmm. left. She was really excited to go back. She'd had a great trip there in October, um, and she was really just revved up and excited to go yeah. back. Um, so no, there was nothing okay. but happiness. Listen, I, I thank you so much for coming in. It's great news, finally, to be able to say that Homo Hoodfar has been released and hopefully will be back in Canada, back in Montreal, very, very soon. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you for your time. Mark LaFrance, Associate Professor, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Concordia University on the good news of Homo Hoodfar's release. Listen to The Aaron Rand Show live weekdays 3 till 7 on CJAD 800 and at CJAD.com.